Well, good morning. Nice to be back with you folks. I was here back in the summer, and at that time I preached in First Peter, and that was a very joyful experience. And I'm hoping that the Lord will visit us today and bless all of us through the preaching of his word. Let me read our passage for us this morning, and then I'll pray. It comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And I'll read both the parable, and then I'll read its explanation. So beginning in verse 24, this is the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then in verse 36, we have the explanation. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The reapers, pardon me, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we as Christians can say that when the clouds are rolled back as a scroll, that when that final trumpet sounds and the Lord himself, the righteous judge, descends, it is still well with our soul, and that is by your grace. So our Father, we come to you this morning thankful that you have 
pardoned and redeemed us through your own son. And Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We praise you for you have purchased us and made us new. And we look now to this text that sets before us the great judgment of the world. And I pray that you would use this word to encourage the hearts of your people, to strengthen them in their faith, and to give them patience as they wait for this day. And should there be anyone in here whose heart has not turned to you, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to convince them of their sin, to show them their need for Christ, and to give them life, to help them believe that they could be, even as he is, shining like the sun in a new kingdom. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would help me now. For I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's certainly something in that parable for all of us to consider with sober thinking. And you might be asking yourself as you're sitting here, what need you have to think through a parable of the final judgment? Certainly it's a familiar parable. Its meaning is not hidden to us as Christians as it was to the Pharisees and the Jews who were listening. They didn't understand these parables of the kingdom. But we as Christians, we do understand them. And this isn't the most complex parable by any means. You have a man who owns a field. That's Christ. You have a field. That's the world. You have an enemy coming in while he, his men are not watching and planting weeds in his field. The enemy being the devil and the weeds being the sons of the devil or those who follow him and behave like him. And then you have his men coming to him and saying, should we pull these weeds? And his answer is no, but let them grow together until the harvest. And then you have a harvest, which is the end of the age, the close of the world, the great day of God's final judgment on mankind. And you have his reapers, who just as the farmers are harvesting their crops now, are going to go out and they're going to gather. And there's only two camps. There's the unrighteous, who have rejected Christ, and there's the righteous, who have believed in him. And, of course, you have the burning of the weeds, which is the judgment of God on sinners. And you have the barn, which is God's kingdom, the refuge and dwelling place of his people. So what need do you have to think of these things? Well, as you ponder that question, let me ask you a question. How has your soul been since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic? Have you reminded yourself very often that God has promised to you a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Or perhaps you've lived in great apprehension and anxiety as you see the very place that you live shaken as if with a mighty hand. 
How has your mind dealt with daily reminders of death counts and respiratory illness and mortality? Have you reinforced it often with the thought that Christ has overcome both death and Hades and has taken the keys of death from the devil and destroyed him through his own death? I wonder how you've reacted to the increased political polarization or how you felt when President Biden ascended to federal headship in this country or his position as president. Or what about the rampant increase in the on the part of government to control our society? How does that sit with you? To say nothing of China, unemployment, Afghanistan, materialism, communism, transgenderism. You see, my friends, I'm not attempting to shame you. I'm merely bringing to mind the facts of the world that we live in to show you what great need, not only you, but I, we all have to be reminded of that perspective that centers both our hope and our happiness in an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be taken from us because it is in the hand of one who is greater than all. A kingdom in which God himself has promised to be your light. A kingdom where death is banished, where worship is made pure, where work is made joyful, tears are wiped away, and unrighteousness will never again cast a shadow in this kingdom. This is what Christ, our Redeemer, sets before us in this parable. He reminds us that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom, but that the righteous will. And therefore, he bids us to be patient. That's what he was telling his disciples. They were very reactionary as they saw their Messiah in his power, in his miracles, in his influence. And they said, Lord, is it now? Is it now? Are we going to take the kingdom now? Are we going to do away with the unrighteous now? And he constantly reminded them, my kingdom's not of this world. At this time, it's invisible. And they were to be patient. He still had a death to undergo, a resurrection and an ascension to make. And he bids us the same. The day of the Lord is coming, brothers and sisters. It's coming. And until it arrives, we have need of patience, just as the disciples did. And you're not the only one who struggles with doubt and discouragement in the face of all this corruption, all this uncertainty, read in the Psalms. King David cried out for God in the midst of trials and difficulties. Or Psalm 73, where you see Asaph was almost shipwrecked in his faith because everywhere he looked, the unrighteous were prospering. They were growing bigger and healthier and wealthier and the righteous were suffering. But then, 
when he went into the sanctuary of God and he remembered what the end of the wicked was, that their feet were going to slip, but that the righteous were led by the hand of God into glory. Then his soul was refreshed and healed. And that's my hope this morning, is that your soul will be refreshed and comforted as you think about the eternal dwelling place of God, despite what you see in front of you right now. So the righteous will inherit the kingdom. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be patient. But let's consider the elements of this parable that would seem to contradict that. What do we see in this parable and in the world around us that would seem to prove the opposite, that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom? Well, certainly the origin of unrighteousness comes into play and argues with our mind. We see an enemy from very early in the the outset of this parable and in the story of Scripture as a whole. It doesn't take very long before there's a threat, a threat to the kingdom which God has promised to his people. And in this parable, Jesus uses the word diabolos in the Greek for devil. It sounds a lot like our word diabolical. This original person or being who is unrighteous and who hates God has been busy from the beginning. And he is sowing uh, weeds amongst God's people. He is busy inciting rebellion against God, corrupting God's creation, perverting his truth wherever he can. And his target, make no mistake about it, are God's image bearers, you and me. That is his target. And the knowledge of someone such as this is certainly unsettling to us because we realize that he is wiser, he is stronger, and he is more ferocious than us. And his opposition at times seems inevitable, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden in paradise with all the creation of God before them. And he just sets one thing in front of them, and they fall. Or King David, the most righteous king to ever rule. And and the devil incited him to take a census of God's people, to think of himself and his own majesty as ruler and his armies as great, to count them and recount how great he was. And God struck down many Israelites because of that sin. Or think of how he prevailed in Moses' time, enslaving the people of Israel, murdering the children through Pharaoh, trying to stop the Messiah, the Redeemer, from coming. Or think of Judas, one of the original twelve. Or what about Peter, one of the Lord's chosen friends, his inner circle? And Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you. Sometimes his progress seems inevitable. And he does make progress in the world too. 
abortion, murder, Bibles are outlawed, Christian churches are persecuted and scattered, Christians are murdered, cults, false religion. And then what about in the church? Sexuality and marriage redefined. False gospels creep in. Authority, a good institution of God, it's either despised as an evil thing or it's abused. Divisions, confusions. But take heart, brothers and sisters, because through his death and resurrection, the Bible says that Jesus destroyed the devil. He took the keys of death from him. And it says in Thessalonians that when Christ appears, he will banish the devil with the breath of his mouth. This one who is diabolical and is busy opposing God's people and his kingdom will flee from the presence of our Lord and his face. So we can say, with our brother Martin Luther, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. It presents opposition in our thinking, but the devil will not prevent the righteous from inheriting the kingdom. We will, we will obtain it. Because the one who has promised is stronger than him. And I've already mentioned the corrupting influence of unrighteousness. But we see this as an opponent. As we try to lay hold of the promise that the righteous will inherit a kingdom. We look around us and we see the opposite. We see the wicked rise to power. We see evil people governing and ruling. We see evil trends and ideas spreading abroad. And we think, how could it ever get better? What could overturn this flood of evil? But God has always been faithful to his covenant people to bring them through times and seasons of great unrighteousness. This is both a pattern and a promise from Scripture. Consider Noah, one man out of a world filled with people, and the judgment waters were coming. God was done with humanity, but he was going to restart through Noah. And they came, but God brought Noah into the ark and carried him through. Or what about Lot? I was just reading this morning, in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was so grieved and tormented in his soul, living among that unrighteous city. Yet when the angels came and said, it's time to go, God has commissioned us to destroy the city. He tarried. He wasn't ready to go. And so they led him by the hand. Even when we linger with some attachment to this world, God is faithful and will lead us 
out of this unrighteous existence into his new and glorious creation. And we have it in Israel too, coming out of Egypt. The Egyptian homes were visited by the angel, but the blood of the lamb over their door preserved them. Right in the midst of that unrighteous camp and company of people, God was able to preserve them. He brought them through the Red Sea as if it was on dry ground. And then the armies of Pharaoh came behind them and they were totally submerged, crushed. God can bring this kingdom about. He's shown you that through the scriptures. He can preserve you through this present evil age and he will do it. So now let's turn from the objections to this truth that is set before us and encourage our hearts and minds by the elements in this parable which are designed to promote endurance, hope, and patience in us as we wait for God, as we wait for the fulfillment of his promise and the coming of his kingdom. And we know that Matthew's gospel was written to show the Jews that Jesus was their king. And these parables are called the parables of the kingdom. And in this parable, we have the one who is issuing orders at the harvest as the son of man. But he is the king. He's the king of all creation, Christ himself. And though this world is filled with devils and corruption, he has not despised it. He came in the flesh, as a human being, fully God and fully man, he took on humanity. Not for the purpose of destroying the world, but that through him it might be saved. And just as he comes to you as a Christian and takes your, your nature, which is dead in sin, and makes you alive, he's coming into this world again. And he's going to take this corrupted physical cosmos and he's going to regenerate it. This world is going to be made new. Our king is righteous and he is going to keep his promises. And so we can reassure our hearts with the words of Isaac Watts in Joy to the World, which was originally written about the second advent of Christ, not the first, when he said, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Anywhere that you see corruption, this righteous king is going to overturn it. He's going to make it new. There's not going to be thorns and thistles affecting the ground anymore. And he is the same one who promised judgment by the law in the Old Testament. And as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, just as every, every act of disobedience received a just retribution under the law, so those who have trampled underfoot, not God's law, but his son, will receive a stricter judgment. And what does the judgment of the unrighteous mean 
but the establishment of the righteous. God is doing away with the one to establish the other. He's ushering in something new. So we can trust that the king who was faithful to Israel to bring about retribution for sin against his law will bring about retribution for sin against his son. And by doing so, he will establish his covenant people, those who have put their trust in Christ. The, the father appointed a faithful and good judge to this task, didn't he? We read in John five twenty-eight and 29, the words of our Lord talking about this day. And this is what he says. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Jesus was speaking of his own voice. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And he said earlier in that chapter that his father had committed all judgment into his hand. Our judge is one who is acquainted with humanity and yet remains God. And the Lord predicted his own death and resurrection. And that certainly came to pass, didn't it? He's the same one who predicted his second coming. And so considering who this judge is. Do we truly doubt that this kingdom is coming? Do we really want to put Christ himself to the test? Are his words reliable? They are. Now let's consider the means of our entrance into this kingdom to stir ourselves up to hope Patience and encouragement. How did it come to be that folks like you and me were brought into this kingdom? Well, it's because this king came into this world to seek and save that which was lost. Ruined sinners. Those who had no moral power. Those who had no righteousness to commend themselves to God. We could have tried all day long for a lifetime, for an eternity, to climb up to God by Mount Sinai. And that would have proved a slippery slope. Our feet would have slipped quickly. But instead of making us climb Mount Sinai from Mount Zion, God has poured down himself. Christ came in the fullness of time, in the flesh. Charles Spurgeon was once thinking about this, the gospel, that the Son of God became man, that the innocent took on the guilt of the guilty. And he said, 
who would or could have thought of the just ruler dying for the unjust rebel? Who would think of a story like that? And in Spurgeon's mind, he was saying that was proof to him that the gospel was from God. Because what normal person would think of that as the means of salvation? The just and innocent one standing in for the guilty. The hands that formed us from dust to be stretched out in our place on the judgment tree. That's how we've entered the kingdom. The one who has authority to pronounce the death sentence for sin has borne that very sentence on himself. He should be pronouncing on us, but he takes it. Consider in Isaiah chapter 53, which is a very familiar chapter and passage. Verses 10 through 11. Speaking of the Messiah. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied and by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be counted righteous that's how you got into the kingdom the righteous one the servant of the lord the eternal king the son of god he took the sentence of death upon himself he was crushed under the weight of god's anger, and judgment. His soul deserved life. It got death. His soul deserved glory and honor. It got anger. And the opposite occurred at every point for us. We deserve death. We got life. We deserve judgment and anger. We get glory. We deserve to be pronounced guilty. We're declared innocent. That's how we've entered the kingdom. As one song says, Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. God has made a full and complete covering for our sins. It's true. Let this thought ring out in your hearts this morning. God has covered your sins you can enter the kingdom because of Christ. Isn't that amazing? That message never gets old. That's why we're here this morning. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. God made him sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me end with a, a story and then a couple of questions. Charles Spurgeon once recounted a story of a famous painter. He wanted to 
paint a picture of the place, the part of the town that he lived in. And he wanted it to be accurate, historically accurate, visibly accurate for those who would see it. And in that town, there was a street sweeper, a rugged, ragged, dirty man. And the painter said to him, Sir, if you will come to my house so that I may paint you in my painting, I will pay you a large sum of money. The painter went the next morning to be painted, or the the street sweeper went the next morning to be painted, and the painter turned him away because the street sweeper had cut his hair. He'd washed his face. He found some more handsome clothes to wear and thought to present himself like that. And Spurgeon went on to say that the gospel will allow you into its halls if you come as you are in your sin. Don't accept the invitation and then try to dress yourself up in good works or dress yourself up as a morally strong person. You're not. None of us is. God accepts sinners into his kingdom on the merits of his son. He has obtained a righteousness for us that we couldn't get, even if we had a thousand lifetimes. So come to God as you are, a street sweeper, a lawbreaker. And if you come in that way, he promises to give you a kingdom that will never perish, to invite you into eternity, to clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Robes that are dipped in the blood of his own son. Pure, white, new garments. So let me ask, have you received the righteousness of the son of God for yourself? If so, my friends, you can bear the pains and the corruptions of this world with patience. God is preparing for you a home where there will never be night where light will never go out and there is no shadow of evil in that place. Have you received Christ as your own Savior, as your own righteousness with God? If so, you can go to sleep in peace tonight. You will wake up in glory someday. God will have the last word. But are you still trusting in your own righteousness? Did you go out and cut your hair and dress yourself finely as you came to God? If that's the case, are you prepared to stand before a truly righteous judge who is omniscient? As Paul said, God will judge the secrets of men. He's not just going to judge the open actions. He knows the secrets too. He knows everything. And would you bring to this judge who knows everything, your own record, your own performance, and say, here's what I've done. This is what I have for you. While his son is standing there, as the lamb slain so that he could give you a better record? Would you trust in those works of yours? 
So, if that's you, don't wait until the last trumpet sounds. Don't wait for that sound. Turn to Christ today in your sins. Believe in God's Son today and receive His garments, His record, His death, His resurrection. That is your hope. And that is what will bring you into the kingdom that God has prepared for the righteous. Not in themselves, but those who are made righteous through Jesus Christ. Wash yourself in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. And if you've done so, you can be patient. This world is filled with evil, but God will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you so much that you have not given us the word of men. You've not even given us the word of angels. You've given us the gospel and good news of your own son, his eternal, radiant glory, his incarnation, his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection, his ascension to heaven and his return as the ruler and judge of all things. This is the word we've gathered to hear this morning. This is our hope. This is our confidence before you and before a world filled with corruption. Please lift up our hearts and our souls and our minds as we think of a day coming when all evil will be banished and Christ will reign forever and ever. Thanks be to you, O God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.